First graders are dismissed. They'll be coming back for communion, so look for them when I step down from the stage. All right, we're going to do something uh, just, just slightly different than what we normally do. I'm actually going to read all of the Revelation chapter 1, and then when I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond. Thanks be to God. So for those of you that's not part of your tradition, it, it's just a, it, there's something pedagogical in it, particularly for this book, and it'll make sense once we get into the sermon. So if you would give your attention to the reading of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronzed, re bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last." And I and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are, are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so as we step into Revelation piece by piece, I want to give you the key truth that we want to walk away with this morning. It is that we are blessed 
by the presence and victory of Christ who invites us to serve as a kingdom of priests in his unfolding redemptive work to fulfill all of God's promises as revealed in Revelation. Let me read that again. We are blessed by the presence and victory of Christ who invites us to serve as a kingdom of priests in his unfolding redemptive work to fulfill all of God's promises as revealed in Revelation. As we step into the book of Revelation, my question for you is, uh, how do you react to books, uh, studies, sermon series, or God forbid, movies uh, on the topic of Revelation. Um, what happens in you when you, you hear something like that's coming? For, for some of you, because you've, you've said so, you groan in your spirit and you worry about what's coming, right? That, that you'd really rather not get into what's, what appears to be, uh, to some people's eyes, the most mysterious book of the Bible, uh, you would rather not get tangled up in all the visions and images because in some part they do appear terrifying uh, or in some measure just confusing. And, and not to mention there's a good bit of suffering for the people of God in the book of Revelation, which is just not something we want to walk into often. Others of you got pretty excited hoping that I will at long last solve the millennium question, which I'm not going to do. That's Easter, not Advent. And if we make it that far, we'll talk about it. Um, and maybe, maybe some of you get excited because you've done a whole bunch of reading on it. And now in some small group, you're going to really do some damage. And so uh, be careful that, you, you not, that we not step into this either underconfident or overconfident. Let us hear the word of the Lord afresh together as his people, recognizing what it is he's longing to shape us into. And so uh, we want to make sure that we, we, we don't vacillate too far to one side or the other. We don't want to just be armchair theologians who have a lot to say about Revelation or ignore it altogether and not be shaped by uh, and turned into the kind of people who could live out what is being said in Revelation. And so uh, the book of Revelation is the, the capstone uh, of, of God's word. It is the fulfillment of all things. It is going to detail the consummation of all things, the promises of God finally fulfilled. And so we want to make sure that we walk away with a greater vision, uh, ultimately, of who God is in all of his radiant glory and who Christ is, who is the, the means by which those promises are kept, and who we are called to be between the now and the not yet. If we can walk away with some of those three, if not all those three, then we will have accomplished what the book of Revelation actually is seeking to do in the lives of God's people. And so, uh, as we turn to Revelation, um, I want to make uh, very clear that the first sentence is the most important. For those of you who read the um, the, the um, devotional, the introduction. If you haven't, I would encourage you to because I think it would be helpful uh, in many respects. Um, but there are guideposts that I think help us to figure out some of what's going on in Revelation, what's, what's being said to us. And this first sentence is the load-bearing stone. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to probably spend more time on it than any of the rest of the verses. So uh, I want to read that sentence and then walk through some of it. Again, hear the reading of God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. 
Let me pause here. So straight away, what it tells us is that this, this is a revelation of, for, and by Christ. That, that this, of, of all the things that we should get from the book of Revelation, straight away, one of the main things that we should walk away with is a greater picture of the person and work of Christ. If you read Revelation and you didn't learn something new about Jesus or walk away with a greater appreciation of what he's done, you read the wrong book or you read it in the wrong key with the wrong set of filters. No matter what you get from Revelation, what else you get from Revelation, which is going to be quite a bit, by the way, the main thing that we ought to get is that this displays the personal work of Christ further and, and more substantially than all of the rest of the Bible has displayed thus far. It brings it to consummation and close. And so uh, that is one of the main guideposts for us. And not to mention, it is also Christ revealing to his people what he wants them to know in the midst of great seasons of suffering. As we saw in that first part, it, this, this is actually predicting what's happening and what will happen. And so there's a, a sense in which the book telescopes uh, and, and reveals things that are happening, will happen, and will happen long in the future. And so um, in all of those cases, Christ is seeking to comfort his people. This should not in any way, if, if you read Revelation and you walk away more confused or less inclined to want to draw near to the Lord, again, some, something's off. doesn't mean you're broken. It just means you're human, right? And we need the help of the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the places where we want to, to cultivate and do the hard work of becoming the people of God. And notice after it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it says, which God gave him. So this isn't, this isn't Christ freestyling. This isn't Christ going off on his own and, and deciding how the story's going to go. It is God in his sovereignty and omniscience and omnipotence has decided what the story is and has given it to Christ. Now you, you remember in one of the gospels where they ask, hey, when are you coming back? And he goes, I don't even know the hour or the time. So he's, in essence, uh, submitting and saying, it is the Lord who has already predetermined and decided it is his story. And that's why I think it's so important that we be careful that we don't lose God the Father in, a, in our Christocentric bent. And what I mean by that is, uh, I think in American evangelicalism, we can be so Christ-centered that we lose God the Father somewhere and forget that it is Christ who is revealing him. That's why we read John 1. Notice it says, no man has seen God the Father except it is Christ who's revealed him. And so this is God's redemptive story, God's love story being brought to a close in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, he gave it to him to show to his servants. So that's critical. This isn't, this isn't just for any casual reader to read. This is for believers. This book is uh, incomprehensible outside of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the work of the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who read it. Um, it's wonderful literature, actually. It is, it is incredibly uh, and beautifully designed as a work of literature using poetry and apocalyptic visions and imagery and all these kind of wonderful things. It is, and, and I studied it, interestingly, two years ago, I studied it for an entire year uh, and then recently have studied it yet again uh, for almost six or eight months now, uh, devotionally and just praying through and reading through. And it is, it is astonishing, the beauty of this book. 
And, and just even thinking back on my own reaction to it uh, as, as a newer believer and just kind of thinking, I don't want to I don't want to get tangled up in those waters. And maybe some of it was influenced because somebody took me very early on to one of those kind of Halloween hell things. Uh, and so I uh, didn't, didn't want to get all tangled up in all that. Um, and so, uh, so, but this is for his servants, meaning those who serve the person and work of Christ, those who are invited into the redemptive work that God is bringing to a close. So we also can't read it casually, even if we're believers you cannot read it for information. What you are reading it for is marching orders. How then you should live given what's coming. What has come, what's coming, and what will come. And so um, we have to make sure that we are reading it with that sense in mind. And it goes on to say something that this, this part really messes with us. It says, the things that must soon take place. That, that phrase alone has had greater influence on the interpretation of the book of Revelation, I think, than any other phrase in the book. Because it, we, we keep trying to locate where, when, and what, what's happening, and, and can we predict, and how can we know, and how can we prepare? Well, how we prepare is to grow as disciples, period. That doesn't change no matter what season or time it is. And we also have to remember that in the mouth of the Lord soon, is, is a very interesting word. Uh, remember in 2 Peter, when we went through 2 Peter in chapter 3, it said, people were saying, where is your God? He's talked all this stuff about soon and coming back, and we ain't seen hide nor hair of him. That's the Southern translation. We ain't seen hide nor hair of him, and we don't think he exists as a result. You remember Peter's response? A day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day, and his tarrying is grace to you. It is because he is patient and long-suffering. So do remember that soon is more comparative. For God who is eternal stands outside of time. For us who will spend time in eternity outside of time uh, when Christ returns, all of this is soon. And so uh, it is not intended to be that which we begin to look for. No, we should always be looking for where is Christ at work in the spheres of influence, which is one of the reasons he is so specific to the seven churches located in seven specific places. He's making sure we understand you will do this. You will live out uh, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him for the life of the world in your local context. This is not uh, something that is intended for us to make some sort of worldwide phenomena uh, that is all joined together. No, it's, it's actually localized things that are serving the greater worldwide phenomena of the return of Christ, who's come once and will come in the end. And so if, we can, if that can serve as our main guidepost as we step into Revelation, that we are getting a better vision of who Christ is, a better understanding of, the, of God's love for us and a better understanding of who we are as servants, then we will have accomplished quite a bit. He goes on to say, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, scholars are quite uh, divided on who this John is. Uh, many think it's the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John and wrote uh, the letters of John. Um, and uh, there's others who think it was some other John that we don't necessarily know who it is. 
I don't know that that's necessarily of, of grand importance to the fact that it's the Holy Spirit's words. doesn't matter which John it is to us, essentially, ultimately. I think it was the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, personally. Uh, but, but I don't think that's worthy of us getting tangled up because all it tells you is it's John, who has been exiled to Patmos, which we'll get to in just a moment, uh, by, by God, as John sees it. And he's going to... Uh, um, that's going to be important to us. But here we have his servant, John, uh, which again tells us that God works by ordinary means. He works through people with names that live in places. He works through the everyday. He works through the perfectly uh, clay-bound uh, and, and broken vessels such as us. And so uh, he chooses John for this. And he bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, that's really interesting. It's something he saw. He was granted access to in ways that I don't fully understand and are mind-blowing to me, too, that he was able to see into the future uh, uh, to be able to write down for us what God wanted written down. Actually, there's a portion of this he doesn't, you, we don't know that is sealed up. Um, but, but he sees it, and that's important for us because I think sometimes we fail to use our imaginations as we ought. And the book of Revelation is going to require us to use a sanctified imagination, but through having, being shaped by Scripture. Again, it's going to be critical that you look for where do these things come from from the Old Testament because that's how you interpretively understand the visions. And how does it, does it set up the, either, either the display of who Christ is, who God is, or the parody of the beast kingdoms and all that stuff? There, it's intended, that imagery is intended to make fun of uh, Christ and the Trinity and the rule of God. And so, uh, but we won't be getting into those chapters. So that was the only foretaste you get. Notice in verse 3, blessed what does it mean to be blessed in the biblical sense? Well, it means that you, you know you can run to God. That you, because of the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, have access to God the Father at all times. Remember that glorious passage from Hebrews 4. Which way are you to run in a time of trouble? To the throne of grace to receive all that you need both mercy and grace in that time of trouble, right? Uh, we say it all the time. You, you're, how you understand the gospel is evidence by which way you run when you sin. If you think that you've got to go clean yourself up and come back shiny and new for God to accept you, you don't understand the gospel. If you think that your sin is somehow more egregious than everybody else's in the room, that you are a singularity in your, your horribleness, I've got news for you. You're not even close. You're one of way too many. And so take heart. That allows you, who sits in darkness, to come out into the light to receive what you need. So to be blessed means we know that God is present with us and we are assured of his love for us. And we know that he's invited us into the work of the kingdom. That's what it means to be blessed. You're not blessed by only one of those. Your obedience by itself, if it is unassured of God's love for you, doesn't leave you blessed, does it? If you think that God's grace is cheap and your obedience doesn't matter, you're not blessed either. It's important that we recognize it is the presence of the Lord, the assurance of his love, 
that affords us the ability to obey and join in the work that he's invited us into. We don't have to, we get to. And that's very important for us. And so he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so what he's saying here is you, you gotta, at some point you gotta deal with revelation and worship. You can't avoid it. And to do so would leave you uh, failing to be blessed. And so may we be a people who walk away from this truly blessed for all that God has done for us. Listen to what Paul Gardner says. He wrote a, a, a great commentary on Revelation, The Compassion and Protection of Christ. He was actually a pastor down at Christ Church, Buckhead, and has returned to his motherland, England, uh, to live out his Anglicanism in full. Uh, but he said, uh, as with all scripture, readers must not only hear the word of God, and this is really important, but also take to heart what they read. In other words, they must take note and listen, adjust their attitudes, their conversation, their worship, and their way of life in light of God's word. Those who are willing to do this will be blessed. They will receive the fullness of God's blessing for them and inherit all that he has in store for those who trust and believe in him. Now again, remember our discussion about indicatives and imperatives. This imperative of obedience is, you can't do that before you know the, the indicative of God's love for you. Notice what John has already said. God loves you. Jesus, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but Jesus died to set you free. And so too often I think we don't see Revelation as a book that does much in the way of discipleship. I think we treat it more as a, a puzzle or a puzzling phenomenon. Whereas instead, we need to approach Revelation as, this is going to change how we live. This is going to change how we think. This is going to change how we see Jesus and God and our calling. And so what are some of the ways in which you have been blessed by reading, hearing, and keeping God's word from other parts of Scripture? Right? So if you haven't experienced it somewhere else, Revelation's can be kind of a tough place to start. So where else have you been blessed by the reading, the hearing, and the doing of God's word? Well, just so you know, just because I'm a pastor, this has not ceased to be a necessity. So many thanks to those of you who prayed for me on the prayer retreat and then the pastor cohort retreat that followed. But the text for my prayer retreat was uh, Ecclesiastes. And it's a book that is actually very important to my salvation. Uh, the Lord let me read it completely wrong so that I would read Scripture. I was uh, convinced that there was a, such a thing as a nihilist in the Bible, which is a really bad reading of Ecclesiastes, as it turns out. And, but it got me in Scripture. And so when, I became, when the Lord redeemed me, I went back and read it again, and it was like the scales fell off my eyes. I was like, oh, man, I, I got this thing wrong. Um, I, I was also notorious for saying I don't need to read Hebrews because I'm not Hebrew or Romans because I didn't come from Rome. Uh, and so I was really sharp, really sharp back then. But, but it was fascinating to read it again some years distant now, I guess about 20 or so from, not that I haven't read Ecclesiastes in 20 years, but to really dig back down into it. And it, it was beautiful. And it blessed me. Y'all, you're getting a sermon series on it probably in 2022 uh, since we're playing it about that far. But, uh, but it's, it, was, 
it was just astonishing what, what it did to my heart and soul to read it out loud, to pray through it. To, I read a book along with it called Living Backwards, uh, which is a fantastic um, devotional on Ecclesiastes. Um, and so, so we, we need to be able to, if you haven't been blessed from somewhere else in Scripture, uh, it's going to be hard for Revelation, but I bet you have. You're not here because you haven't been. And you may just need to think about it a bit. It's a great question to think about. What, what passages have meant so much to you? Uh, every Friday, I pray through 1 Corinthians 13 so that I don't lose, and, and I read and pray through that, so that I don't lose the call to grow in love. That, that I would just, I don't want to be a clanging symbol, and I think I've been that uh, on a number of occasions uh, in different circumstances. But then, how, how does this, based on your previous experience with Scripture and your blessedness with it, how does it affect your expectations uh, for being blessed by our time in Revelation? So you may want to try to connect those dots and, and think through that so that you, you'll be blessed. Turn back to, the, to God's Word. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 4. Um, it says here, John, the, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Remember from our sermon series on Ephesians, grace and peace are very specific technical terms. They're, they're not just throw away, I, I didn't know what else to say, this sounds religious, let me just say grace and peace to you. No, they are so loaded with the freight of God's love for us, that grace, meaning that we would be lavished by his love, have access to all the heavenly blessings, peace, that everything would be made right, that one day the fullness of shalom would come, that everything would be restored and put back right as it ought be, as it was intended by God. And so when he says this to them, he's reminding them straight away, before he gets into any of the visions, before he gets into anything else, he wants them to hear these freighted technical terms, grace and peace to you. And he goes on, from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, that who is, who was, and is to come, that shows up a lot in the book of Revelation. And that is God's signature statement of his sovereignty and his omnipotence over history. So every time you see that, you wanna pause and be reminded of God's control of all things, of God's working in all things. And he goes on to say, and, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Uh, again, that's just a description of Christ that is important to us. Being firstborn from the dead means he went first, which means we get to go after him, that his resurrection leads to our resurrection. Uh, and that he's the ruler of the kings on the earth. Again, remember Psalm 2, uh, which we talked about in the book of Joel. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Now, what he's doing is he's, he's, letting, he's reminding them, this is what you've been saved from. You've been saved from the power of sin and death. You have been set free, which means you were what? If you gotta be set free, what were you? You were enslaved. And that language shows up a lot in the scripture. Romans 6 is a great set of uh, terms on that, that, talking about how we've been freed from sin because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so, so he's saying, this is what you've been saved from, but this is what you've been saved for. You are a kingdom of priests. That language uh, comes from Exodus 
uh, 19.6, which is originally what Israel was to be when they were brought into the promised land. They're, they're, what they were called to do is to radiate the glory of God such that the surrounding nations would know of God's love for them, know of the atonement available to them. But they failed to do that. They never actually lived that out. But what's interesting is God never gave up on that call for his people. How do we know that? Well, 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9, picks up the same language again. You are a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, we have been saved for the opportunity to share with those around us in our spheres of influence the glorious redemption of Christ. I wish we looked more like a kingdom of priests than a bunch of loudmouth prophets who have not been called by anybody. Um, as one who's incredibly critical now, I'm not throwing stones in a glass house here. I've been deeply convicted by the, the, the times at which I've, I've failed to be priestly. And it's not only priests, by the way. He does, there are those who are called to the prophetic task, which actually is a priestly thing to do to confront people with their sin, but too often they think that we get caught up in that's all we're doing. And we spend way more of our time doing it in the wrong directions. We are way prophetic against the culture, right? And then we're way too kind uh, to, to the church itself at times. Whereas, no, it's the other way around. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Whereas what we ought to prophetically kind of look at is, are we being biblical? Are we, are we glorifying Christ in what we do? That's a wonderful thing to critique and think through. And then to the world, what we're to be doing is, in, is inviting in from a hospitality standpoint. Yes, there's warning of God's justice and judgment. Do not get me wrong. We didn't forget everything we just read in Joel. But before you cut a man's nose off, you probably should ask him to smell the rose first. And so, uh, so it's important that we not forget this is our primary calling that primarily we are called for the life of the world to serve, not fight, destroy, and kill. God will take care of that. He told us in Joel, in the valley of decision, it'll happen. When we get to 19 and 20, Revelation, we'll see, it goes down, right? But that's, that's not for us to be doing between the now and the not yet. We are to be calling to repentance, calling to uh, atonement, calling to receive Christ as king and God as father. And so please remember what we have been saved for. All of us, by the way, no one gets off the hook. None of you is not gifted in some way to participate in the kingdom of the priesthood. Now, different ones of you may be called to larger spheres of influence than others. Different ones of you will function in different ways in those various spheres of influence. Sometimes your main priestly calling is to love your family really, really well. If you don't do that, you don't have much priestly calling in the larger spheres of influence. You just don't. That's the cart before the horse. Some of you are called to do it in the public school system. Some of you are called to do it in the private schools. Some of you are called to do it in your workplace, in your families. I have a granddaughter now, and she's the cutest thing on the planet. Uh, I'm just here to tell you. Um, and, and, but part of, part of our calling now uh, is she now enters that sphere of influence as grandparents to keep before the generations the gospel. Um, and so I've got to make time for that, right? Uh, Susan, I've got to make sure Susan has time for that. Susan's parents are aging. 
Her father's 80 and not doing very well. We've already looked at rearranging our schedule so she has more time to go and be with her mother and father and me go as well so that they can go and I can stay with her dad. Um, and so, you know, seasons ebb and flow in terms of spheres of influence. And priestliness is not just um, writing a blog post that a bunch of people read or even a book that a bunch of people read or a song that a bunch of people listen to or any of those kinds of things. It can be those things if the Lord grants. But more importantly, it's just the everyday stuff, right? If you do that first, then the other more might be given to you, but that depends. And then it goes on to make sure that we know uh, that we are kingdom priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to, our priestliness is to reveal the love of God. And it gives us, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Coming on the clouds is from the book of Daniel, uh, but more importantly is the reminder to us as the kingdom of priests that a day of reckoning is coming. And better that because every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to be loose to confess, right? And better that that be done to Christ as king who comes to redeem and deliver than as judge who comes to lay to waste. And so we need to remember that that reality is serious for those around us and care deeply for what's going to happen to them as we serve as a kingdom of priests and servants. And then to remind us yet again, John has him say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It is God who is sovereign over all that. We don't need to worry about the days and the times. We, we have our marching orders. We know what we're supposed to be doing. It does not change radically based on the time. It just doesn't. It doesn't matter what era you're born into. It doesn't matter the circumstance you're born into. It doesn't matter who the seventh beast kingdom might happen to be and the eighth, all this. That may be known, but it doesn't change your calling doesn't change what you've been saved for, and it doesn't change God's sovereignty over all those things. That's the most important thing for us to know. And so, as we think about that, listen to what Derek Thomas has to say about this. He says, behind this phrase, Alpha and Omega, lies the idea that a sovereign hand is in charge of the future, that history is his story. What happens to God's servants is not chance, but decree. God orders and fulfills his plan for his people, even in the face of terrible and terrifying events. No matter how bad it may seem, God never abdicates his rule. Now you may say, well, that raises a whole bunch of questions for me. Well, shouldn't the meaninglessness of suffering, if God is not in control and you're just suffering ad nauseum according to the principalities and powers of darkness, that doesn't raise questions for you? Yes, it does raise questions that God decrees what happens to us and some of what happens to us is not good. Yet, him being in control grants it, infuses it with meaning and possibility and potentiality. And we're not intended to not have questions, by the way. We are finite after all. So what does it mean for us to function as a kingdom of priests? We've already talked about this a little bit. You need to think through that. What does it look like in your spheres of influence to represent the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
What does that look like? Is, is, it, is it verbiage? Is it inviting? Is it hospitality? Is it doing really good work, which unfortunately too often Christians are not known for? What might it be? Because what's important to remember is what Satan wants you to do is to resurrect your past mistakes and, 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 and make them into present excuses for why you can't do it. That which God has cast as far as the east is from the west, Satan would love for you to dredge back up and say, nah, kingdom of priests, I, mean, I can't even. No, 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 that, that redemptive fodder, that, your mistakes that God has transformed in the power of Jesus, that is a wonderful tool in the hand of a kingdom priest. Are you kidding me? What a beautiful gift it is to have people at, who, who are willing to share their broken cups. Because so often what somebody needs who's caught in darkness is somebody who has passed through that same valley and made it into the light. Satan would also love for you to see your present circumstance as prohibitive and keep you from any future service. That you would say, well, if I, wasn't, if I didn't have these bad kids, I could do a lot more. <laughs> You've been entrusted with kingdom souls. What are you talking about? Well, I, if I didn't have this, this albatross, this, this uh, iron ball of a marriage, I can do all kind of stuff. Well, why don't you stop trying to do all kind of stuff and just cultivate and turn that iron ball into something softer and gentler? Is that not worth doing? You may say, well, well but you know, I've got, I have to work X number of hours. <laughs> yeah, that's a good gift to you. Uh, again, think through how those hours might be transformative. Um, and so don't let Satan whisper low into your ear with either your past or your present and keep you from what the Lord has for you in calling us to be a kingdom of priests. And then what comfort do you derive from the sovereignty of God over all of history? That ought to be a great comfort to us, his people, that God is first and last. He was and is and is to come. He is the almighty. To that we should say, amen. All right, turn back to the text uh, for this, this last bit. Um, where we see Jesus keeps his promise and he is present with his church to the end of the age. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, historically, it is presumed that he was exiled there because of him trying to do ministry. But notice, he doesn't mention the political person who put him there, or the powers that be. What did he say? No, the Alpha and the Omega the one who is and who wasn't is to come, put me here for this purpose. And so whatever your circumstance is, John is saying to you, you're there for a reason. Now the question is, are you asking good questions? Are you seeking to cultivate what you presently have? Are you mad at God and just trying to get out of it, hoping for wholesale change, which rarely just doesn't work? So he goes on, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists those churches there again, reminding us this, these things happen in a local context. You'll hear more about that from chapters two and three. 
And notice he turns around he see, to see who was speaking to him, and he sees one who is among the seven lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like a son of man. So the lampstands, we find out later, are representative, the heavenly representative of the earthly reality of those seven churches. Christ dwells among them. That is good news to us. That he walks among his churches in the heavenly reality as well as in the power of the Spirit in the earthly realm. And then he goes on to give this description of Christ, which comes from Daniel. We saw part of it in Isaiah that we read this morning. It's all Old Testament imagery brought together to reveal uh, the, the, the different aspects of Christ. And while we may be thinking, wow, what does this mean? Well, what it means is that Christ is holy. What it means is that Christ is the, has the word of the Lord. That is his main weapon. That is his, the main way in which he will deal with people is he will pierce them even to the joints and the marrow. He's not out to just slaughter people. He would love to see them redeemed by the power of the word. And notice when John sees this, the weight of it knocks him down as if he were dead. And Christ lovingly reaches down and touches him and says, fear not. Notice what Jesus says for our friends who say, Jesus never said he was God. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am God. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I was, I am, and I am to come. And so he's associating himself with God. And notice what he says in, in, in a great display of sovereignty. He says, I have the keys to death and Hades. That becomes incredibly important as this book is preparing people essentially for martyrdom. He's saying it is not the principalities and powers of darkness who will kill you. It is not that they will have a final say over you. Notice, uh, if those of you who've read Revelation, later on the martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord? because they know he has the keys to death and Hades. So that should be a comforting thing to us. This is just a restatement of God's statement of himself from the mouth of Christ himself. And he goes on to tell him to write these things down, that it is for the purpose of the seven churches, that this is to equip the churches as to how to live in a fallen and broken world. Listen to what Dennis Johnson says of this passage. He says, the symbols seen by John in the vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, that's the eyes of fire, full of consuming holiness, the hair that is white, and boundless wisdom, the sword that comes out, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word, Revelation's vision show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. So what comfort do you derive from Christ's promised presence with his churches through God's word and his Holy Spirit? We have it, let's be honest, we have it pretty good, right? We, we, we get to set up and tear down every week. They've, and we may have to cut this out because I don't want them to know. They've never, they've never raised our rent in the 18 years we've been here. They've always been accommodating. We had one little hiccup last week where they asked if we could worship somewhere else. And they, they accommodated us. Uh, and we're very gracious. That's the most suffering we've had in the five years I've been here is that one time we may have had to worship somewhere else. 
What a gift. And, and by the way, for those who sit up, I know it's worse sometimes. You come in and it smells like fish, or this morning it was maple syrup for reasons I can't explain. Uh, and, you know, and so, it's, yeah, and there's stuff that has to be cleaned up, but, but on the whole, we, we have it pretty good. We, we get to set these chairs up and do this thing. And, uh, and it's not under duress like our brothers and sisters in Cuba or China or um, Morocco or other places where it is a dangerous thing to gather in any sort of group in worship. So while we have this great gift, let us grow. Let's take the opportunity to cultivate and become disciples of the Lord our God. So Revelation 1 teaches us that we are blessed as those who read, hear, and keep the revelation of Christ. And that Christ died and rose again to make us a kingdom of priests for God's use and glory. And that Christ dwells with his church through God's word and spirit until the end of the age. What a gift that on the day that we begin Revelation, the first uh, seven chapters, that we get to take communion to be reminded of who Christ is and what it means to be blessed. And so, uh, if the elders would go ahead and come forward, and Wes Calton, who's helping out as well. I saw Wes somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, before we get into the words of institution, I'd like us to take an opportunity. This should be coming up on the screen um, uh, for us to read something from 1 Corinthians 15. Noah, do you have that slide? Noah, do you have the slide, 1 Corinthians 15? You're a good man. Thank you. I want us to uh, read this together. What a beautiful reminder is we, to, to be reminded of who Christ is. Since this, the revelation is the revelation of Jesus, his person and work. If you would join me in reading this, and then I'll give the words of institution. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do remember that on the night that he um, was having the last meal that he was going to have in his present bodily form with, uh, with th those that he loved so dearly, he wanted to give them something tangible, something every day that would, that would actually help them to remember what he had done for them. And what's powerful is if you pay attention to what he emphasized for all the things he could have emphasized. He made some things very clear. The first thing he wanted them to know was that, that he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body that is broken and given for you. And in telling them that, what he was saying to them is that he was, uh, was going to bear the full weight of the justice of God for our sin past present, and future. Now, how can he do that? Because he was the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And so he broke for us so that we would not have to be broken in that way. And so as you receive uh, the, the bread this morning, if you would, as you hold it, take time to give thanks for Christ so specifically, so powerfully, so beautifully laying down his life so that we could be set free. Um, and just as a, a, a couple of things to just say to you, if you're not a believer, you, you can't celebrate that. Um, you just need to let the elements pass you by. 
Um, if you are in a circumstance that you are uh, condemning of someone else that you, you think you're God and can judge whether or not they go to heaven or hell, meaning you would rather they just go to hell, you can't take either because you don't understand the gospel. Um, and, uh, and so or if you're under church discipline for some reason from, from another church, I don't know of anybody in that circumstance. Everybody always gets nervous and wonders, who is it? Could be you, I don't know. Uh, um, you shouldn't take until you're reconciled with that particular body uh, so as to be able to take and eat as one who has been set free and fully reconciled in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Christ who has set us free. Thank you for the glorious picture that we have already seen of him in Revelation. Thank you that uh, he loved us so much that he was willing to endure a suffering that we have no comprehension of and can never have comprehension of because he took it on our behalf. May we take and eat as a people who are being shaped further into his image. In Christ's name, amen.